0: Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah and chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. We have 53 verses to cover this morning, if the Lord will be merciful to us. These two chapters in front of us are a little different than 26 and 27 and 25 and 24 that had a great deal of praise and song in them. There's not so much song in in 28 and 29 but hopefully lessons for us in line with what we've already thought of this morning including what is your shield and what is your exceeding great reward do you even have a reward anything in this life cannot be called an exceeding great reward nor a great reward and it's not really a reward in comparison to having a relationship with the Almighty Himself and letting him be our shield and our reward. But let's hope that some of these lessons from Isaiah 28 and 29 will serve the same purpose. In the first four verses, we have the ten tribes called Ephraim being mocked by God for their capital city of Samaria and their prosperity. In verses 5 through 8, Judah is blessed in distinction from Ephraim, and preserved temporarily. In verses 9 through 13, Judah's rebellion against instruction is shown. In 14 through 22, they will be judged for their lying scorners and thinking they can get away from God's judgment coming upon Judah. And then in the last number of verses, we have the genius of farming, the genius of agriculture, explained to us as a gift from god put in the hearts and minds of some men because not all nations even have this blessing and yet the purpose is not for us to learn about farming but to learn that god's providential dealings with men god's chastening is perfect just as one grain should be dealt with one way and another grain dealt with a different way so god dealt with israel and judah differently god will never thresh you more than you need he will not always be dragging an ox over you to crush you sometimes it will just be beating you with a rod and so it ends beautifully in, in an application and an illustration of how God treats us in our lives so let's look at these verses may the Lord bless us in them I believe that chapters 28 and 29 should go together by the nature of chapter 30 and 27. And we're going to see the Assyrians in these chapters that we're dealing with right now for a period of time. After we pass over into the second half of Isaiah, much of the emphasis is on Babylon, but for the time being, it's on Assyria. And as I've pointed out to you, that's an event you want to know. It's in the Bible three times, and that is Assyria... Troubling Israel, taking Israel captive and dispersing them, and also judging Judah, which is the two tribes that included Jerusalem and the seed of David. Verses 1 through 4 Israel is mocked and to be destroyed. And by the word Israel, the name Israel, here it's Ephraim. And so I want you to remember Ephraim was the predominant tribe of the ten that deserted from Rehoboam. And so Israel took on the name of Ephraim because it was the predominant tribe, just like Judah took on their predominant tribe, Judah, though there were two tribes there, Judah and Benjamin. But it took on the name of the predominant tribe. And the same with Israel and its ten tribes. Ephraim was the prominent tribe. So here we go. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. And the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley, shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. Amen and amen. This is the book of Isaiah. For those of you that thought that the book of Isaiah was your favorite, I hope that you still think that, and I hope that you'll look at these chapters as being part of your favorite book and that you'll want to learn what some of these statements are saying and teaching us and may the Lord help us this is woe instead of it saying the burden of Israel it says woe unto Ephraim meaning the same thing this is God's judgment on the ten tribes woe to the crown of pride these drunkards that made up the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes had God's judgment coming after them. It's called, they're, they're, they, are, they are described as having glorious beauty, which are on the head of the fat valleys. The city of Samaria, which was the capital of the ten tribes, was only 30 miles north of Jerusalem, and so it was close at hand. And it was set on a hill 300 feet high, a number of square miles. in in surface area, in the middle of a valley, surrounded by higher mountains. It was an ideal setup. And it was a little bit lower than what was surrounding it, and it was elevated out of this valley, and it was very prosperous, and it was the jewel of the 10 tribes. Enough about that. You should be able to know that just from reading these verses. That there was something glorious about the crown of Ephraim, and the crown or the capital, or the jewel of a nation is its capital, or should be, its chief city. And so was Samaria, being the capital of the ten tribes. And this judgment is going to come against Ephraim and their glorious beauty, which they thought they had, in the fat valleys of Samaria, around that capital city. But there's woe coming and an exclamation point at the end of that first verse, because their glory is going to be like a fading flower. You know, flowers are pitiful. You get this beautiful flower, if you cut it, then you're in serious trouble, because the clock is ticking very fast, because it is going to fade so quickly. But even flowers that are not cut only last a little while. We love spring, because we like to see some of the trees burst forth with their flowers, but if you don't get some nice pictures or you don't look at them quickly, they're gonna be gone. And so it was gonna be with the glory of the 10 tribes. And don't think that because right now everything's going well for you, that it will be going well for you tomorrow. Who said it's gonna go well for you tomorrow? You have no idea what tomorrow will bring forth. The Lord said we should never make a boast of tomorrow, for we know not what a day may bring forth. And so when we look at even the first verse, there's a lesson that woe can be coming to glorious beauty. It's going to fade like a flower. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one. This is Shalmaneser following Tiglath-Pileser and Sargon, who took over when Shalmaneser died during the siege of Samaria. These are the Assyrians coming, and they took, the, took away the ten tribes. They took away Ephraim. They scattered Ephraim. They took Ephraim. Ephraim and deported them into Assyria and brought Assyrians and planted them in Samaria. And this is written about in detail in 2nd Kings 17. That is where I have told you the Bible story of those Assyrians imported to Samaria, complaining that the lions were eating them. Well, the lions were eating them because they didn't have any of the true religion. And so they found themselves a priest that would teach them a little bit of the fear of the Lord and the lions went away. And that's, that's what's happening here, in summarized in one verse. The Lord hath a mighty and strong one. And that's the mighty Shalmaneser of the Assyrian empire that came as the final wave to take away Ephraim and the 10 tribes. And he would come like a tempest of hail and destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing and shall cast down to the earth with the hand. This king, with his great army that he brought into Israel, was able to take down the glorious beauty of Samaria with his hand and destroy it. What does a patch of flowers, or what does a beautiful flower look like after a tempest of hail or an overflowing flood? It's destroyed. And so it would be to these people, And these are the people of God. This is the church of the Old Testament. A rebel part of that church, but nonetheless, the Lord's people. Verse 3, The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. The Assyrian army would march upon them. And the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley, which I briefly described to you, shall be a fading flower. And as the hasty fruit... And so we have another illustration there. But this glorious beauty, which was like a flower, would be wiped out by the tempest of hail and an overflowing storm. And the storm would be the Assyrians, just like they were called way back in chapter eight. They would get out of their bank of the Tigris River and they would flow and overwhelm Israel. The last similitude here is in verse 4, the second half of the verse, because Israel's going to be like the hasty fruit before the summer. Which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. This is the first fruit that's hasty. It arrives soon. You have waited for an entire off-season for fruit to grow. And you see the first one, a hasty one, the first one pop. You haven't had this fruit in a good while, you grab it and you eat it and it's gone. And how much is there left? No, it was the hasty fruit. And you ate it and destroyed it. And so the Assyrians would do to the glorious beauty of Ephraim, just devour it and it would be gone. You know, when you've gone for a whole season without apples and you wait and wait month after month for apples or some other fruit that is your preference, when you finally see the first one pop, oh, I want to, I want to remember what that thing tastes like and it's gone, and you devour it so quickly, and so Assyria did that to Ephraim. And so we have the judgment of the 10 tribes. Remember, once upon a time, they were part of the 12 tribes. Once upon a time, they said, what do we have to do with you, David? Well, they should have known the Psalms a little bit better, because that was in the time of Rehoboam, so they knew the Psalms. And the Psalms had some things to say about the seed of David, and I would have wanted to have been attached to the tribe of Judah. They made their choices, and they continued to make choices. They did not put David, nor his seed, nor his son first, but thought they could have a competing religion and a competing nation, and here's what the Lord did to them. And those drunkards were trashed by the Assyrians. Praise the Lord. Verses 5-8 through In that day, shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Amen and amen. The sense of these four verses. This is the residue of the people. These are Judah. We had Ephraim and the 10 tribes. This is Judah and the two tribes. This is is the residue, those that would be left. Shalmaneser didn't take Judah. Shalmaneser didn't touch Judah. Shalmaneser took the 10 tribes and dispersed them into many nations, but they didn't touch Judah. Judah is the residue. This residue has a prophet and a priest. Israel didn't have either. This is Judah, and the also there is that it is a distinct people, but they, like the first batch, like the first group in verses 1 through 4, were also guilty of the same sins. But they were God's favorite, so they lasted a little longer. Remember remember that when we get to He shall not always be bruising the corn. He'll not always be doing it. There's a limit to His chastening, And his chastening varies from grain to grain, if if we're still looking at the analogy or the metaphor, and the way that he treated Israel and Judah. So when we look at verse 5, we have a different group of people. In the last part of that fifth verse, the residue of his people. This is a residue that has a priest and a prophet down there in verse 7. This is a residue that is God's glory. God himself came to these people and blessed them. He was their God. This is Judah. This is Hezekiah. At the time that Shalmaneser took away the ten tribes, Judah was under Hezekiah. And Hezekiah obtained these kind of blessings, and we're going to read about them in in these two chapters and in chapters that follow, as the Lord destroyed the Assyrians and blessed Hezekiah. The siege of Israel took place in Hezekiah's fourth through sixth years. In his 14th year, Sennacherib came up against him. And so that, that's a little bit of a timeline. And you know that he got 15 more years for a total of 29 years reigning. And he was 25 when he began to reign. He died at 54. Some of these things you want to remember a little bit about the timeline of Assyria and what they did. Shalmaneser came in the early years of Hezekiah's reign and took the ten tribes away. In the fourteenth year of his reign, Assyria came after Judah. And you know the Lord killed the 185,000 and delivered him. But let's go to verse 5. In that day, when God takes away Israel and leaves the residue of his people, leaves Judah, the Lord of hosts would be the crown of glory and the diadem of beauty for Judah. This is a beautiful comparison. Ephraim, or the 10 tribes, or Israel, and their capital at Samaria, thought that they had glorious beauty. Just be... There's a play on words here, brethren, right. even in English. There's a play on words here. That, foreign na- that nation of the 10 tribes thought that they had glorious beauty because of their prosperity and the geographical situation of their capital city, that they had a crown of glory and glory, but it was their crown of pride, and they had glorious beauty. But here, Judah has a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. They have the real thing that doesn't fade. A crown doesn't fade, and a diadem doesn't fade, those are hard minerals or stones or precious stones. And so God was, to Judah, those things. And he was, through, he was that through Hezekiah. And not only was He a crown of glory, in verse five, and a diadem of beauty, that is the Lord Himself, in that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory. What made Judah special? They worshiped the Lord of hosts rather than the two golden calves of Israel. And they had a diadem of beauty, which was their relationship, their temple and their capital, their altar to the true and living God. And verse 6, And the Lord of hosts would be for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment. So they had wise judges that had divine wisdom given to them to take care of the people and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate God blessed Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18.8, I believe, is one of the places where God blessed Hezekiah to chase enemies out of Judah all the way to the gates of their city. This is an army strong enough, skilled enough to turn the enemy back to their gates and chase them home to where they want to get back inside their city walls. And so we have four kinds of blessing upon God's church of Judah. God Himself was their crown of glory. That's what made them glorious. What makes this church glorious if it has glory? That Christ gets all the preeminence. It is the number one character trait of higher ground for a church. That Jesus Christ gets the preeminence. The Lord of hosts was the crown of glory for Judah, he was the diadem of beauty, he was the spirit of judgment, and he was the strength of battle. He was everything to them. He was their exceeding great reward. He was their shield and defender. And that is what I want for you, for your families, and for our church. That we have those four things. A crown of glory, a diadem of beauty, a spirit of judgment, that we know how to make good decisions. And that we have strength for the battle. When the Lord will bring some battles for us, but we'll chase them home, just like Hezekiah chased the Philistines back into their city gates. This this comparison is fabulous. It's fabulous to compare verses 5 and 6 up there to verse 1 and verse 4. The glorious beauty of Samaria was nothing. God said, It's like a fading flower, and you know what your fading flower is going to look like when I hit it with a tempest of hail? But, but Judah had a crown, a diadem, spirit, and strength. Beautiful. That's what we want as a church, and that's what I want for you. And here is the beautiful part God is so merciful. If we will honor his son see that Judah was special Do you remember that in chapter 8 the land of Judah was called O Emmanuel mm-hmm. the land was called O Emmanuel Why because through Judah was going to come Emmanuel the Lord Jesus Christ God loved Judah For David's sake. God loved Judah for David's son's sake. But look, because look what it says next in verses 7. Verse 7. That third word. The third word in verse 7. Does that bother you? Does that bother you? Does it bless you? And bother you at the same time? Why should it bless you? Because the Lord of hosts would be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to Judah but not to Israel. He scattered them and left them. And 65 years later, if you remember these prophecies that we've learned, they would not even be a people. But Judah would be. He would never let them completely disappear and he would bring them back from Babylon and make them great again and through them would come Jesus Christ, the son of David, as Messiah. They also have erred through wine and through strong drink. And seven goes on and on and on with repetitions of the drunkenness that was in Judah as well, so that all tables are full of vomit, in verse eight, and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. The majority of the nation was given over to drunkenness. But Judah, God was with Judah, God would recover Judah. Remember, God killed 185,000 Assyrians To keep this nation that's in verses 5 through 8 he didn't do anything like that for Israel when Shalmaneser came Shalmaneser had free course to take the ten tribes but in spite of this sin there is always God's mercy toward his people and he would bring them to repentance and the difference here is the difference between having oxen all 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of them pulling a heavy cart crushing, bruising bread corn, Israel, or being beaten with a rod like cumin and fitches. I'm just setting you up. I'm setting you up for the end of the chapter, so we won't have to take very long there. Because when we get there, the Lord's gonna say, I have given agricultural genius to some men, so that they know certain grains are highly nutritious And valuable for making bread and other products for men to live in an agrarian society and I have taught them how to prepare the ground how to plant it how to harvest it and how to process it and that genius that I gave certain men is my genius twice he's gonna say I give it to men if God is able to give that to men with something as low as grain what does he have in his own mind and heart in his dealings with his people, right. that he knows just the amount of chastening to give. It's very precious. Amen. He knows exactly how to treat each one of us. He never gives us too much that we can't handle, that there's not a way to escape. But we're, but we're not at that, the last part yet. We've just made our, our way through two sections, and so much more could be said about the spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in the gate. No decision can stop you in any real way if the Lord of hosts is with you. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Lord of hosts. James 1, 5, called God in the New Testament. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. No enemy can touch you in any real way if the Lord of hosts is with you. Because of Hebrews chapter 13, because the Lord is with us, Why then should we fear what man can do unto us? Because we have the Lord with us. And so the lesson is, Israel sinned too long and was forsaken by God. Judah, by having an attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, was preserved, though chastened severely. Yet it wasn't destruction for them. Verses 9 through 13. If you think I'm going too fast, I'm sorry for that. That means that you certainly will be one of those that get the outline later and review it so that you can get all that your heart desires. Verses 9 through 13. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips... And another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest, wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And amen to that these people of judah rebelled against instruction by their prophets and made fun of the prophet's method of teaching them the simple things of repent and be saved repent and be saved and they mocked it this passage is not giving us some divinely inspired genius way of teaching the bible This is mocking the prophets by describing them as a mommy with a three-year-old. How is a three-year-old taught? This is A, and it makes this sound. That's a precept. This is B, and it makes this sound. And even mothers today teach their three-year-olds, which is weaning time on average in the Old Testament, not for us today, but for them then, That is how they were taught. And here a little, there a little is not a verse from Genesis attached to a verse from Exodus. It's here in the morning for a few minutes we'll teach baby. Because baby only has a limited capacity for instruction at one time. And then at noon we'll teach baby a little more. And then in the afternoon we'll review with baby the precepts and the line. Can you copy this line for me? Can you read this line for me? Can you read the next line for me? This is infantile instruction, and the people are rejecting it as being beneath them, and they don't want to hear the prophets. I am sorry that 30 years ago, or 25 years ago, I taught this passage as some genius description of homiletics, or hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Homiletics is the science of delivery, of preaching. And this passage doesn't have either. You say, but here a little and there a little was just so convenient for the Apostle Paul picking up a verse from Psalms and then a verse from, oh, I know it was. And that's what makes rightly dividing the Word of God work. W-O-R-K. If it was black and white everywhere we went, then it wouldn't require much work, and the laborer could just relax. And he could just get in the pulpit and read it to you because it would be so obvious. But it takes work. Whom shall he teach knowledge? Listen to that. Who's asking whom? Is God asking Isaiah? Who are we going to teach? Is Isaiah asking God? Or are they being mocked for the method of the prophets? Why didn't it work? If this is the genius method of hermeneutics and homiletics, why didn't it work? Because they weren't drawn from the breast yet? They were a bunch of sots. All you have to do is read the previous two verses. Their drunkenness, all their tables were filled with vomit. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? The prophets are being mocked. What do you think you're gonna teach us? You treat us like babies. You act like we're three-year-olds. You just keep saying the same thing over and over. You tell us that in the morning, you tell us that in the evening. You're treating us just like a, th- just like a mother teaches her three-year-old. Hear a little in the morning, hear a little at noon, hear a little in the afternoon. Precept A makes this sound, eh. B makes this sound, buh. It didn't work. If this is the means to teach knowledge and give understanding, why didn't it work? Here's what's going to happen to them. It's in the middle of this passage. It's It's verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. And the stammering lips and another tongue was first the language of the Assyrians, and then it was the language of the Babylonians. So that they had to listen to foreign invaders that came into their city and they would learn some doctrine because of them and they did learn doctrine. You know, the prophet said, if you'll repent, you can have the rest because we have have the means for you to extend your tranquility in Judah. It's in verse 12, and this is the refreshing. If you would repent, God will preserve our nation. If you'll repent, God can save us and give us rest instead of being constantly threatened and scared by the Assyrians coming. And they would not hear it. But the word of the Lord was to them as a mother teaching her infant children and it offended them because it was beneath them. And so they hated it and they rebelled against it because it didn't satisfy they wanted a pleasant sound are you all familiar with Ezekiel 33 where God told Ezekiel they come and sit in your church and they fill up all the pews because they think you have a nice voice and a pleasant sound but they will not do what you say let me give a New Testament comparison to this why did the Greeks hate Paul's preaching the Greeks They stumbled at Paul's preaching. They were offended by it. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. It was element, why? Because it didn't, it wasn't rhetorical enough for them. It wasn't, there wasn't enough flourishes in it for them. It wasn't advanced enough for them. They thought of it as being infantile and base and beneath them. And the apostle Paul intentionally dumbed down his message to offend them. He knew the market survey. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, the Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jews look for a sign, and I'm not gonna give either one of them what they look for. This is such a, is such a powerful point. The preaching of the cross should be just made in base, elementary terms, and if you don't like it, leave it. Because we're not out to, to, to pander to your flesh, or to tickle your ears and the apostle Paul wouldn't, and Isaiah wouldn't. And so they looked at it as being treated like infants. Precept upon precept. How many times do you say two plus two to a child before they remember four, with two days of not being taught? How long? Over and over, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. It's mocking the prophets if if and i don't know why it would be but all of a sudden isaiah becomes a pastoral epistle and so we have five verses here that are a pastoral epistle and he's trying to teach jeremiah and jonathan crosby how to preach precept upon precept precept upon precept why'd you say it four times or are you making fun of me line upon line line upon line what's a line how how long is a line here a little and there a little we have chosen to pick it for the sound of its words to describe a method right. of bible preaching that all we have to do is read the new testament and see it so much clearer by illustration of the apostle paul and how he preached and how he wrote his epistles this is If this is a genius way of instruction, why didn't it work? Who is asking the question in verse 8, in verse 9? Is it God asking? Is it Isaiah asking? Or is it the people making fun of him? Are you trying to treat us like little infants? Are you trying to treat us like three-year-olds? Babbling to us, precept upon precept, giving us these little rules over and over again? We're sick of it. We're sick of hearing it in the morning. We're sick of hearing it at night. And so the word of the Lord was to them either the genius method that didn't work or it was something offensive to them because it was below them and the way that god is going to get their attention is not by the genius method of preaching in verses 9 and 10 and 13. the way he's going to get their attention is how assyrians and babylonians spoke in a foreign language the apostle paul uses that verse verse 11 in first corinthians chapter 14 to describe speaking in an unknown tongue since you didn't want to listen to my preachers in their simple presentation of the truth and since you made fun of them for their way of presenting the truth as being beneath you and not up to your dignity and more like teaching a little three-year-old then i'm going to send some men to you that will speak with stammering lips you're not going to understand the movement of their lips and it's going to be another tongue in verse 11 to whom he said this is the doctrine that they had been taught this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest and this is the refreshing yet they would not hear what happened to poor Paul in first Corinthians chapter 1 when he preached the gospel It offended the Greeks, and they wouldn't hear it. When he wouldn't do signs to match up with exactly what the Jews wanted, they were offended and stumbled over it and wouldn't hear it. So what did Paul say? I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We gave you the simple instructions of how to find rest and refreshing in Judah and be delivered from the judgment that is coming, and they would not hear. It's not that they could not hear, they would not hear, but the word of the Lord was unto them, and it repeats that whole little mocking description of preaching. If that was the genius method, and it was the genius method to them, why weren't they converted? Because they're mocking it. And they wouldn't submit to something so infantile. If you take those words, there's no value that you can get from them for properly preaching the New Testament that isn't clearly stated in the New Testament in pastoral epistles and in Paul's examples of writing epistles. It's all there. You know, you just have in your heads, here a little and there a little means a little in Genesis and a little in Exodus. Well, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, Isaiah didn't do it isaiah unloaded on them original material on how they could find rest and refreshment and so when we look look at look at where we're at we have in verse 8 all tables are full of vomit we have in verse 14 that they are a bunch of scorners how do we get a pastoral epistle out of what's in between they're scorners in verse 14 they're mockers in verse 22 and that is what they're doing to the preaching of the gospel. They're, reduced, they're making it like you're teaching an infant, and it's beneath us, and we're not going to listen to it. And so, the word of the Lord is, since you wouldn't take my clear instruction, that if you would repent you could have rest and refreshment, some other men are going to come and they're going to speak with a stammering lip. They're not going to pronounce things the way that you do, and they're going to have another tongue. It's going to be the Assyrian tongue and the Babylonian tongue let's come to the next section verse 14 just to remind you you haven't heard me say in 25 years here a little and there a little from Isaiah chapter 28 just to, just to help remind you maybe 20 years it's been at least a couple decades because the passage isn't a pastoral epistle for how to preach It's for what they thought of it and how they reacted to it. It was beneath them, and they weren't going to submit to it. We're going to run into this as soon as we get to chapter 30. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. They didn't want to hear, repent to save this nation. They wanted to hear pretty stories and anecdotes and and examples and illustrations rather than the word of the Lord. The next section is verses 14 through 22, and it's long. So let me read these nine verses to you, beginning at verse 14. Wherefore, since you wouldn't hear me, wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation, only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter, than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower, than that he can wrap himself in it. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Purism, and he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work his strange work and bring to pass his act his strange act now therefore be ye not mockers lest your bands be made strong for i have heard from the lord god of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth amen and amen nine verses for judgment god's promise of judgment for judah's lying scorners They're called scorners in verse 14. They're called mockers in verse 22. And they mocked the warning by the prophet that death was coming. And they would be in the grave soon if they didn't repent. And men do that today. And men did it in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today it it is made fun of anyone that preaches intensely and preaches from the word of God and preaches repentance is called brimstone and fire he preaches hell fire. Well, we don't want to hear hellfire, fire. And these people didn't want to hear hell fire and thought they had made a covenant with death and that they had an agreement with hell that they wouldn't have to go into the grave. And so they covered themselves with their deceits and they deceived themselves by promising each other peace. And if you've read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, there's just constant repetitions to, we're gonna have peace, we're gonna have peace. But the Lord says, what is their chaff to my wheat? What are their visions and their dreams compared to my fire and hammer? I will beat in pieces their dreams. And so that is the lesson that we have before us, God's judgment coming upon them for being lying scorners against the word of God. There is no way that you can so design your life that you can avoid God's judgment. If you do wrong, if you sin, there is no way for you to hide. There is no place for you to go. The fact that he takes a little while is his mercy and his long-suffering and his gentleness and his greatness. He will come calling. He will visit you. Prepare to meet your God. Is what the prophets preached. Wherefore, Hear the word of the Lord. You people didn't like what Isaiah has said so far? Well, get a load of this then. In verse 14, Ye scornful men that rule this people. Notice, the Lord is going after their leaders, their prophets, their drunken priests that we read about in verses 7 and 8. Because ye have said this scornful idea of yours that you will be able to escape. Now on one hand, brother, when you look at verse 15, it is hard to imagine that a group of people that were God's people and His rulers would actually put that into words. But you can put things like this into words other ways. And I've shown you that before. My favorite example, I think, is Malachi chapter 1, where it says, ye have snuffed at the table of the Lord. And they said, where have we snuffed at the table of the Lord? in that you said, it's a burden. So the Lord is able to take, it's a burden to go to church. If you think it, or if you say it, it doesn't matter, you have said, the Lord of hosts is not worth my worship. If you hear a sermon that condemns a certain lifestyle, and you practice that lifestyle, and you think you're going to escape, then you're like verse 15. We've made a covenant with death. It's not going to take us. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, the overflowing scourge being Sennacherib and the Assyrians, it's not going to get us. And we don't care about your preaching. We already have confidence that we're going to be safe. That is what verse 15 is saying. They're scorning the prophets and the, the preaching. Remember how this book started. Do you remember way back to Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 2? And it was terrible and it was frightening. And Isaiah starts right off out of the gate of preaching what's going to happen to them. But they think that they're going to escape. There's all kinds of escapes, brethren. What is the fastest growing ism in America? I've told you this many times. Can you remember? The fastest growing ism. Universalism. There is no hell. Everyone's going to be saved. There's no God in heaven that would throw people into hell. It's the fastest growing ism. And that's a way that you can make a covenant with death. And an agreement with hell. There isn't one. That's so convenient. Listen, brethren, if there was was a 5% chance for there being no hell, wouldn't we try to study it out and see if we could raise that a little bit? We would love a doctrine that didn't have a hell in our flesh. But the Bible tells us there is one. And it makes it very certain and plain that there is one. So we've got scorners in verse 14, the leaders of the people, and they have def- they've lied to themselves, and they've lied to the people under falsehood if they hid themselves. They think that for whatever reason, all kinds of reasons, that the scourge that's coming, and they call it an overflowing scourge because Isaiah had called it an overflowing scourge. It's not going to get to us. We're going to escape it. We're pretty good guys, we're pretty prosperous. Look at, God's been blessing us. God wouldn't do that to us. We have his temple in this city. In Jeremiah chapter seven, their lie is called the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. It's repeated three times because they thought, because they had the worship of God, they could commit their abominations and be preserved because they had God's temple. Well, God's gonna tear that temple to the ground with Nebuchadnezzar. The temple isn't going to save. This church isn't going to save. The doctrine isn't going to save. Only the Lord can save when you're obedient to Him. Okay, you lying scorners. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, to get their attention, look at what He sticks in in verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. Amen and amen. God's statement of judgment that follows after this verse is as certain as his commitment to the son of David and to build up the son of David as the foundation, precious cornerstone of his kingdom. And it is stuck in right here to get, this is not the first time. Ahaz, would you like a sign? No, I would never ask for a sign. I'm such a pious man, I wouldn't ask for a sign. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive. The greatest thing God has ever promised is his son coming to this world and establishing a kingdom for His Son where His Son will be the chief cornerstone of that kingdom and He will exalt it. And in Isaiah 9 it said, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Right. Yeah. This is 1 Peter 2.8. First Peter 2.6. First Peter 2.6. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone. Judah was Zion. Jerusalem was on Zion. Zion was the name of one of the hills on which Jerusalem was built And the, all the, remember the Psalms have already been completed all the statements about David and his son and Mount Zion her palaces, her bulwarks all the wonderful things said about Mount Zion in the book of Psalms known by these people and so the Lord says do you know how sure your judgment is let me just connect it to something else that you should be sure of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ being the precious cornerstone. I lay in Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 that is spiritually fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has a real spiritual kingdom of which we are part of right now. When it says, He that believeth shall not make haste, you are to make connections in words. And I'm out of time to do this for you. It's in the outline, but hopefully you know it. Have you ever heard the expression, haste makes waste? That is taught in the book of Proverbs because haste leads to shame, leads to being confounded because you made a choice and committed yourself to a cause before you fully examined it, so you end up ashamed and confounded. And if you go through the Bible, you will find, he that believeth shall not be ashamed, he that believeth shall not be confounded, and here it's described as, he that believeth shall not make haste. There'll be no shame nor confounding to the man that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ because there is nothing hasty about such a commitment of faith. You'll be saved. Verse 17, Judgment also will I lay to the line. I have more than just my kingdom that is coming in the future. And righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. The hiding place is what they called it back in verse 15, where they hid themselves. So you've got 15 with them saying we are well hidden from the overflowing scourge that's coming. Verse 17 says, you are not well hidden. I've got a line and a plummet that is gonna find you out and sweep you away and sweep away your lies and sweep away your defense. And in between, my commitment is based on my commitment to Zion in my son, the chief cornerstone of my kingdom it will certainly come to pass and your covenant with death verse 18 shall be disannulled which you, th- you're, you think you're safe that because I've preached death and you can mock it by saying you have a covenant with it you will be trodden down by the Assyrians verse 18 verse 19 from, as soon as I declare it's time for the Assyrians to come against Judah it is going to take you It is going to be hail morning by morning. It isn't going to quit. It isn't going to quit until it accomplishes my purpose. You're going to wake up in the morning and say, it should have stopped by now, and it won't stop. And just the report of the Assyrians coming is going to terrify you, as it's described in verse 19. It shall be a vexation only to understand the report. The cruel Assyrians are on their way with a massive force. It's going to be terrible to even hear about it. And this hailstorm, how long does hail last? Honestly, for those of you that have ever been in a hailstorm, how long does it last? Just a few minutes. This hailstorm morning by morning, it's just going to keep until it sweeps away all the lies and all the liars and all the scorners that taught the lies. Verse 20. For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it. I may not have had very much trouble with this verse in my life, but some of you are tall enough that maybe you have. If you put a seven-foot man in a six-foot bed, or a six-foot man in a five-foot bed, it is not comfortable, it is not restful, it is not refreshing, it is not adequate, it is not sufficient, is the point. And have you ever been given a blanket that's too narrow for you to cuddle the way that you're used to cuddle in your wide blanket? It's insufficient, it's not adequate, And their protection and defenses and covenants and plans against the Assyrians would be like a bed too short for you or a sheet too narrow for you. It won't work. It'll be inadequate. It'll be insufficient. 20 is easy. 21, for the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon. Those are two battles where God stood up and defended David and wrought great victories by David against the Philistines. And they're documented in the Bible. Gibeon is also where Joshua had the sun stand still. Right. But since we start with David at Perizim, and that's the only place we find it elsewhere in the Bible, we go ahead and use the Gibeon that is next in the account in 2 Samuel chapter 5 about David. Because we have Perizim, and Gibeon associated right together with David God rose up and gave David mighty victories against the Philistines and he's going to do that but this time he calls it his strange work and his strange act do you know why it's why it's called strange because it's not against Philistines it's against Judah that's what makes it strange a strange work and a strange act now therefore "'Be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. "'Lest God makes it worse for you "'than he has planned for you, repent. "'For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts "'a consumption, even determined upon the whole earth.'" These are the words from Isaiah chapter 10 where it describes Sennacherib, a consumption determined upon Judah. "'I have heard about it. "'It is on its way. "'If you want to have it minimized "'as far as you're concerned, repent.'" If you want the bands made strong, if you want to be tied up tighter and punished more severely, then just keep doing what you're doing because God is coming with a strange act. He ordinarily would do that to the Philistines, but now He's going to do some of that to you. And so we come to the last section of Isaiah in chapter 28. Verse 23 god's works god's providence god's chastening compared to farming i've taught you this passage many times in the last 20 years because i want you to know that god makes difference in that election and god's sovereignty can be seen in all kinds of ways by just observing the nations just observing people how god makes huge differences verse 23 of isaiah 28 give ye ear and hear my voice Hearken and hear my speech. He has just called God's judgment of Judah, his strange work and his strange act, and it's going to be with the same violent fury as Mount Perizim when he defended David against the Philistines. So he's telling them to give ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. And this will be quite creative. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches, and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat, and the appointed barley, and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion, and doth teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel, Turned about upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff, and the cumin with a rod. Breadcorn is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. What a passage of Scripture. I do not want to distract you with... Farming information, because I don't know of any of you that have a cumin garden or a fitch's plot or even growing rye for your rye bread. I don't think we have any of that in the church. So instead of me entertaining you, go to my outline if you want to be entertained with different grains. I want you to see the lesson of this passage, and it is of great comfort that our God knows exactly how to deal with each one of us, just like farmers are given discretion and wisdom and agricultural genius, let's go ahead and call it what it is, to pick certain grains. Why don't they grow sumac? Why don't they have vineyards of another ivy? poison ivy where did they come up with these grains that make great bread that make great muffins god taught them and he taught them what to do to the ground before you put it in he doesn't plow all day because he thinks plowing is cool it says that doth he plow all day doth the plowman plow all day no he plows a certain piece of ground puts the seed in plows some ground puts the seed in He's got a plan and his plan is stretched out over a timeline of spring, summer and harvest. And it's beautiful. The first half of this chapter is the preparation and planting phase. The last half of, did I say chapter? The first half of this section is the preparation and planting phase. And the second half of this section is the harvesting and processing phase. And right in the middle, we get a reminder of what the lesson is about. And right at the end, we get a reminder of what the lesson is about in the middle is for his God verse 26 for his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him discretion is the wisdom to know how to individually treat a unique situation the proper way and each grain is unique that needs to be dealt with a certain way and he doesn't take all of his grains and say, I want to make multi-grain bread, so I've put these bushels of seed together, and I'm just gonna dump them in the field. He says, in in their place. Each grain has a place. Now, why did he do that? Wouldn't multi-grain bread that you got right from the ground be pretty cool? Because then you couldn't harvest it or process it. Because you'd have one kind of grain needing one kind of treatment, and another kind of grain treating it. Brethren, are you thinking right now about the lesson? He can look at our congregation and know each one of us, and deal with each one of us just the way we need to be dealt with. And he can look at nations and deal with one nation differently than another nation, like he dealt with Israel differently, Ephraim, than he dealt with Judah. Praise the Lord! You know I've brought you to this passage so many times, to show you the sovereignty of God by being able to open up men's understandings. This is a witty invention. Instead of it being a technical tool that's used in a laboratory somewhere, or something you can plug into your wall, like a microwave oven, this is agricultural genius. There are nations that hunt monkeys with blowguns. Still. Missed it. Oh. What a good supper that monkey would have been. There are nations that still chase rabbits with boomerangs. And God made differences. But that is, see that's what I've brought you here before to see the sovereignty of God. And that God can give wisdom and withhold wisdom. He can give certain wisdom to the horse and sight to the eagle. And he can withhold wisdom from the ostrich. Remember, we've learned those things. He makes those differences. But this one is for His providence in dealing with us. His providence in dealing with churches. His providence in dealing with nations. He gets an ox out and gets a heavy cart and drives it over the grain and bruises it badly and crushes it. But He's not going to do that to the coming and the Fitches. He's just going to spank them. That's what it's called here, with a rod and with a staff. And the difference is for you to see the genius of farming given by God. And if God is able to give that to dumb men down here on this planet in order to farm, just think of the infinite wisdom he has in dealing in the affairs of nations and with our lives. Right. He has, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able that's the lesson the strange work the strange act God is going to have to arise in fury like he did for David against the Philistines but now he's going to have to arise in fury against Judah there's there's continuity here there's context here so that when you start into verse 23 give ear let me explain this strange act and strange work and this consumption because You've already been taught multiple times that consumption is not permanent, is it? I'm going to consume Judah, take them to Babylon, but I'm going to bring them back, reestablish them, and make them greater than ever. Rebuild their temple, and the second temple will have more glory than the former temple because my son is going to visit that one. That's, That's all been taught already about the recovery from Babylon. So there's a consumption, but it's going to be limited. Verse... Uh, verse 28 bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it he's not going to keep crushing it all day long and then again tomorrow he's only going to go to a certain point to bruise it to get the two to separate so that he can get the grain off the stalk get the grain separated from its shell the different kinds of threshing that there are just right. it's just beautiful but i don't want you distracted what i want you laying hold of are the tremendous promises of God here. In the gentlest of ways, the Lord by Isaiah explained the wisdom of his providence. The insertion of various farming techniques here is not an accident, it's not bizarre, it's to show his discretion. That 26th verse, his God doth instruct him to discretion. Discretion is knowing how to alter your conduct with unique situations. And each grain is unique, Ephraim was unique, Judah's unique, they got different treatment. You are unique, you get different treatment. God knows exactly what we need. God's providential dealings with Israel and Judah and with you and me is wise. He is wonderful in counsel. Look at the end of this chapter. Which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So when he used the words strange work, strange act, it was unusual for him to be ripping his nation like that but it wasn't going to go too far he would only bruise it he would only beat it out with a rod or with a staff and he would recover it and save it and make it more productive than ever and that is exactly what happened with sennacherib if you go back to isaiah chapter 10 verses 20 through 23 when sennacherib was defeated there was a revival but he used a foreign tongue and stammering lips and he used judgment And he used a rod and a staff to beat the foolishness out of them and recover them. And then Hezekiah's son was Manasseh and took the nation to new levels of iniquity and sin. And so God sent Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed the temple. And took them captive to Babylon. And so the threshing was a little harder, but still there was a remnant. And he still recovered it because it all depended on verse 16. Therefore, the Lord has set in Zion a cornerstone, and he will preserve Judah. I, is the Lord Jesus Christ yours today? Are you his today? Are you showing it by your life? Is he your crown of glory? Is he your diadem of beauty? What do you think is beautiful about your life? Every one of you I know are tempted. I could take each one of you and tell you things that you think are important to you. Every one of you, and me. But what is our real crown of glory? It should be the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our diadem of beauty? The Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we get the spirit of judgment from? The Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we get strength for battle? From the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that's called? That's called productive farming. When we make the Lord those four things, and He knows how to get it out of us. Yes, He does. He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. May the Lord bless the preaching of Isaiah 28. Amen. Amen.